Well, good morning. It's great to see you again. We're, we're glad that you're here, and uh, we welcome those at Paulding. We just want to say, you guys are here in spite of the snow, the adventurous core of Grace Community. We're glad you're with us. All right. That's what we, now, I, I got to tell you something. First of all, we know at least one person came in on a snowmobile. Who did that? All right. All right. Yeah, that's so that, that's what we like. That's creative. Nice. That's good stuff. Uh, and then the other thing we notice is our, Jeremy can tell who's streaming us online. And that number's way up this morning. So here's the deal. Some of you are sitting at home, probably in your pajamas, watching this. But you're missing all of us. So I just want you to know that. Uh, but we're glad you're with us anyway. We're glad Paulding's with us too. Just a cool, cool day. How many of you noticed screening? There was a Grace Ministries of Fremont. That is not us. I don't know who it is, but that's not us. We'll always be Grace Community, and we'll always do that. But, uh, but the better place is just go to ohiograce.com or the Facebook page, and we'll give you all the information you need to know. But anyway, we're, we're glad that you're here. This morning uh, is the, the morning that we're doing this vote, which we're still doing that. If you didn't already vote, Early, we're excited about breaking ground as soon as the weather breaks uh, for a whole addition to our building right on the other side of this wall. And uh, as all that happens, we're just giving you the opportunity to affirm. We've been planning this for a long time, just affirm what we're doing or say no, you know, or, or whatever. But just just mark that and put the ballot in. Uh, we've already got several things. Everything's going well, but we just want to give you uh, your opportunity to speak into the process we're excited about what God's doing at Grace. We are, well, Super Bowl day. I, I didn't even mention that last service. I just got to know, because it's, it's tough for me this year on picking who to root for. Who, who's, our, who's our Seattle Seahawks people here? Wow, that's a poor showing. Okay, and the New England Patriots, how many of those? Okay, I think the majority feels just like I do, right? You know, it's just kind of like, Law. I mean, okay, all right. I'll have to see the game, but all right, we, we got some people interested, so so we're rolling. We're in a series called Steam, and this is really uh, a, a series about momentum for life, and we're talking about the Christian life. And so we started off saying, well, first you need to own faith. Then the greatest command is to love God. Talked about that a couple weeks. And now we're on the, the second greatest command is love people, and that's where we're landing today. And, uh, and so we're going to read a different portion of Scripture. Today we'll be in Luke 10. If you want to turn there in advance, that's where we're heading. And if you'll remember, basically, we're coming off of, to start our series, this whole thing of what's most important to God. What, once we own faith, once we're a believer, then what is the most important thing to God? And Jesus answers that question and actually, Jesus was, answered, was asked that question more than once. And he answered that question more than once. And we would expect that because he's a rabbi. He's doing three years of public ministry. And remember, as far as the Jewish people were concerned, as they were trying to keep the law of God in order to follow God, they had 613 commandments that they were trying to get right and so it's very natural for them to stop and ask, what's most important? And, and we're going to look how that goes at another place in Jesus' Jesus's ministry. And that's, as I said, in Luke 10. And we're going to start in verse 25. 
And here's what it says. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now again, the question's a little different. It's not the greatest command. We'll find it's going to be the same answer. But this guy's saying, he means the same thing. What's the most important thing for me to do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, and he said to him, this is Jesus saying, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? Jesus is asking this lawyer, how are you kind of figuring out these 613 commandments? How are you synthesizing this down? And so then he said, he answered, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. This guy, he nails it. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. He's saying, hey, you pull this off, you'll have eternal life. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Do you kind of get what's happening here? The lawyer asks, they're interacting with Jesus. What's the most important thing for us to have eternal life? And then Jesus says, well, it's the greatest commandment. Jesus, he says, Jesus knows that, but he's asking, well, what do you think? And the guy says, greatest commandment, love God with all you got and love your neighbor as yourself. And he's getting that from the Old Testament. He's getting the love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus, and he, he nails it. And then Jesus says, got it. Do that. You do that perfectly. You, you, you do that. You're going to get it all right. But then the lawyer, he's smart enough to realize, hold it now. Who's my neighbor? And maybe he's thinking the way we would think. Wow, if Jesus told us, well, love your neighbor as yourself, you're good to go. And we might be thinking, oh, love my neighbor. Well, I'm, I'm pretty good at loving my kids. I, I'm, I'm okay at loving my spouse or, you know, I'm pretty good at that. You know, and we could go down the list, but all of a sudden he's saying neighbor. So I don't know what this lawyer's thinking, but, and Jesus could have said, Second greatest commandment, hey, first love God, then love your children and love your spouse. He didn't say it that way. He's saying, love your neighbor is the second most important thing. And so as the guy, he asks a great question. Who's my neighbor? And he's looking for some wiggle room here. And then Jesus answers the question with a story. It's a story you've probably all heard before called the Good Samaritan. And just the fact that we even call it the Good Samaritan tips us off to something because when Jewish men told stories in order to teach, Samaritans were never the heroes, except for this story that Jesus told. And, and it kind of has a twist in it that would catch a first century person's attention. Verse 30, Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and he went, and went away leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, the Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds and pouring oil and wine on them, he, he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
And on the next day took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I'll repay you. That's the story. And then Jesus says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And then the lawyer answered and said, The one who showed mercy toward him. And then Jesus said to him, Go. And do the same. So here Jesus is answering the question on who is the neighbor. And it's a lot broader than than I'm sure this lawyer was thinking. Because this is a Samaritan. This guy's not even all Jewish. I mean this guy we're kind of looking down on. It lives on the wrong side of the track kind of a person. And Jesus uses this as an illustration. But one of the things... As we get into this whole issue of loving people that I wanted to, to pull out of this story is Jesus answers who the, who the neighbor is, who is our neighbor, is that in order to love our neighbor, it's going to, to cost us something. It's going to take some time. That's what I learned from this story. And, and it's, going to, it's going to take some of our resources. And I say that because we live in a world where people don't have a lot of extra time, or, or they feel like they don't. And here's what I'm saying. If nothing else, we should learn from this story from Jesus that we need to create some margin in our lives in order to allow time for us to love our neighbors and resources too. But we need to create this margin in our lives to give, give us the time to do what Jesus told us to do. Now, a lot of people will say, well, that's my problem, I have no time. And I heard a guy this week say it, this last week say it this way, and, and I loved, it was very convicting the, the way he said it. He goes, you know what, if you're busy and you don't have margin, you don't have time to love your neighbor like what's happening in this story, that's okay as long as everything you're doing is more important than what Jesus said was the second most important thing that you should be doing. Does that make sense? All of a sudden, I wasn't feeling so good about that. See, all the stuff we're doing, if we have no margin to love people, no time, then that's okay as long as all the stuff we are doing is more important than the second most important thing Jesus is telling us to do. It's huge. We need to create the margin in our life in order to give us a time to love people. That's our primary purpose for living is to love God and then love others, love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the thing. And it all starts really with loving God. So let's talk about that whole love thing. Because today we're talking about loving our neighbors as ourselves. First of all, why is loving our neighbor important? What is that kind of neighborly love? And then what's genuine, you know, that second thing is what is genuine neighborly love? And then the third we're going to talk about a counterfeit love. So first of all, why is it important? We've been talking about this first because, well, God is love, and we're connected to God through Christ. And as we do that, love, as we connect to God through what Jesus has done for us, through faith in Christ alone, then that increasingly 
means that as we follow Christ, as we become followers, that love is increasingly part of our character as well. We should be growing in our love for God, and as we do that, we'll grow in our love for other people once we own faith. Maybe it is the way to say it. He's saying, and again, we kind of bury this, but loving our neighbors, not just our family, loving our neighbors is the second most important thing that we're supposed to be doing in our life. And then the question is, are we living that way? Are we really placing loving others as our second most important priority? Because that's the importance of it. That's why God, God's telling us that's the way it is. Because God's love. And then, why is loving important to God? Well, one of the things is he's telling us that sacrifice is love. And God taught us this through his son Jesus. So why is love important to God? Us loving others is important to God because that's the way Jesus loved us. It's the supreme example of love what Christ did on the cross of Calvary. And we talked a few weeks ago, we were talking about how do you really know, maybe this is in December, how do you really know you, you love someone? How do you really know? Because it's not words. Well, we were kind of throwing out there that you really know you love somebody through sacrifice. Sacrifice is the proof of love. Sacrifice is the language of love. And sacrifice is God's language of love also. And that's how God loved us through Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. John 15, 13 says, Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5, 8, the gospel. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What's going on there? Because we realize that we've been created in God's image and, and we have this, this freedom to follow God or not, to do right or do wrong, and that we've all messed up and we're all sinners. We're all in the same boat. And justice demands that we pay for our sin. But God loves us. But justice demands that we pay for our sin, that our sin is paid for. So how can this be? What can God do for us? Well, the only way is love by sacrifice. That's the only way... That justice can be served, but yet we can have a way to be forgiven. And the way that played out is that Jesus Christ voluntarily dies to pay our penalty for sin because he had no sin of his own. He dies on the cross and then we are offered forgiveness based on faith. And we've talked a little bit about that. So we're offered forgiveness by simply placing our faith or our trust or our belief in Jesus and what he did on the cross for us, that sacrifice, that's what saves us. That's what makes us a Christian. It's not church. It's not church rituals. It's not baptism. It's not uh, you know, some class that we take. It, it's, it's none of that. It's our faith in Christ. You have to own faith. Then we're taught first, love God. 
And now we're talking about loving people as a result of that. That's the gospel. And we see it happening, how the gospel's impacted our lives right here at Grace. For example, if you look around, you'll, you'll probably notice people sitting in proximity to you. Unless you're at home in your pajamas, this may not work. But the rest of you, you're sitting in proximity to other people that if it wasn't for Grace Community Church, that you wouldn't normally be sitting around. These people, some of the people around you, they're not going to be in your kind of circle. They're just people that you normally wouldn't connect. But here we are sitting together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're more than just friends. We're connected. It's like we're family, church family, through Jesus, united in Jesus. Why are we united? Because we understand that like all of us, we're all in the same boat. We're all sinners, estranged from God, actually enemies of God, that God's loved and sent Jesus to die for us. And then we've been able, even through God's grace, to respond in faith and become a believer. And that's the church, that's what the church is supposed to be. That we come together from different backgrounds, different upbringings, different stations of life, different places in life, all this stuff. And we come together and we're loving each other. And God has a lot to say about that. He brought us together really for a reason in church And the first thing that we should be doing when we're talking about loving others is, of course, we have our family, but then it's our church family we should love. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about how how we know that from Scripture that we need to be, we need to be, that's why it's important to show up in church, even, even when it's not as convenient, because God's given us all a role to play in loving other people, encouraging them, connecting with them, developing relationships with one another. That's part of what we do. Love actually shows our identity in Jesus, our connection with him. Part of the reason we exist as a church is really to give the world a glimpse of the kingdom of God and and what the world should look like as we come together and love each other, a community of people who love each other. John 15, 12 says, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. It's that kind of love. That's why it's important. He's loved us and he's telling us we should love this way. Now, what is genuine love? What is it? Well, Paul, he actually defines love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we call that chapter the love chapter. And the reason we call it the love chapter is because we read that a lot at weddings. And a lot of people use the principles of that chapter you know, to apply to the marriage relationship, and it does have a a lot to teach us about that. But primarily, 1 Corinthians 13, that whole definition for love, it wasn't primarily about the marriage relationship. It was primarily written about the relationships that we have within a church family. We know this because that's the entire context of several chapters through that area of 1 Corinthians. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12, we're told that we, all of us as believers, once we've placed our faith in Jesus alone for our salvation, 
realizing we, we're not bringing anything to the table on that. None of our good works helps us or any good deeds. It's just faith in Christ. Once we get that and we become a believer, God has equipped all of us with some abilities or spiritual gifts or whatever you want to call that in order to serve primarily the church. God's equipped all of us in a way that when we come together, and he described it like a body, like we're all different parts of a human body, and some people are the hands, some the mouth, some the feet, and he described it that way. And the whole point of that is, is when we're not all meeting together, we're not complete, and we're not able to function the way God wants us to function. That's chapter 12. And then when he gets to chapter 13, he talks about us loving each other and then how we use these abilities we have. And he basically says, no matter how impressive your abilities are, if you're not doing them in love, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. And then after that, he then defines what love is. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 4. And he says it this way. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what he's saying. It's amazing, and I'm not going to break this down too much, but you just look at the very first word, love is patient. And that sounds kind of easy, but actually patience, patient is a, it's a weak English translation for that word. In the English, it's not near as strong as this word is in the Greek. And, and that's why... The King James translated it long-suffering. But really what this word means, this word describing patient, it means to bear up under provocation without complaint. To bear up under provocation without... That means when things aren't going well and you're feeling slighted and all those things, that you're, you're responding, you're bearing up, you're long-suffering or forbearing, some translations, you're bearing up under that without complaint. I say that to say, that's just the first thing in the definition. I'm just saying, love is tougher than we think. It's real. It, it means something. The most, it's stronger than we realize. And when we talk about loving our neighbors, the best thing that we can do for our neighbors, or, or the way that we can love our neighbors the most is, is to somehow point them to God, because that's their greatest need. So if they don't know God, that's job one. Of course, in order to do that, we, we want to love them, build relationships with them, let them know that we care about them. That's the first step in all of that. So we want to point people to Christ as individuals, and then we come together corporately, and we sort of band together in order, to, again, to point people to God. That's the Great Commission. It's love and action. The question is, do we really love our neighbors enough to get to know them and point them to God? 
we talked, um, when we were talking about loving God, you know, what if Jesus came and he sat down um, on the, the platform and he asked me, you know, how am I doing at loving him? And it's the same thing if he came and, and sat down and said, Kevin, what's the second most important commandment? Well, love our neighbors as ourselves. And, and then Jesus said, how are you doing on that? And then I would say something like, well, I, I, I think I'm pretty good at loving my kids and loving my wife. He said, that's not what I ask you. Love your neighbors as yourself. How are you doing on that? We might, you know, try to figure that out a little bit. Even in the narrow sense, even if neighbors didn't mean Samaritans and and people out there, even if it just meant our physical neighbors, if Jesus asked me, well, Kevin, just in the narrow sense of your neighbors, tell me the names of all the people that live around you and their children's names and what you've done in the last eight years that you've been living in your house to show them that you love them. Be like, oh. Write down all the ways that you're loving. And after a few minutes, it goes, how you doing? And I'd be going, well, maybe you phrase the question a little. You know, how you doing on that? Because that's how practical it is. Yesterday, I was actually in uh, California for a couple of days this week. I've been elected to a, a board that oversees our fellowship of churches. And there was a, a meeting out there, and uh, so I was in Seal Beach for a couple days. Cloudy the whole time, just want you to know that, so no sunshine, it's still nice. But uh, got back on Friday night, I was just uh, there for a couple days, and, uh, and so Saturday I was in kind of brushing up on some things, and I noticed, you know, you pull in on Saturday, amazing, and our church parking lot is half full, half, it's completely full on that side of the building, and half full over here on the west side, and and I come in, and what's happening is upward basketball is in full swing. It's just, it's just rocking. And so I, part of the time, I, I go back, I stick my head into the gym, which I normally do on Saturdays. And, and I'm just, because I've been thinking about this, I'm really just struck with everything that's happening in our gym. Here our gym is literally crammed full with our neighbors. And then I see a bunch of people from Grace Loving them, and they're loving them by being referees and uh, scoreboard people and coaching kids and assistant coaching basketball or coaching cheerleading. Then I went over into the snack bar, which attracts me like a magnet, and so I'm in there, and you know, and there's three people kind of handling uh, the snack bar and, and stocking that and everything, and there's just all these people that are there from grace, making it happen. Loving God and loving people. Because you know, a lot of people in our world would be like, wow, you're doing what on Saturday? I just talked to uh, Scott England. He's, he owns the, the pizza place on the other side of town, a football uh, pizza. And he's a, a newer believer. He was here from... I think 7 in the morning to 7 in the evening. Not everybody has to be here that long. I don't want to scare you from volunteering for Upward. But he was here over 12 hours yesterday. And, and a, few other, a few other people were maybe five 
people did that. But, you know, why? Because they're loving God and loving people. And they're making the difference. Upward is just an on-ramp for Grace Community Church. Upward is just a way, an entry point that people could, will come to Upward. They'll enroll their kids in basketball. People that would never even have a thought of coming to any church, let, let alone Grace or any other church. They have want nothing to do with church. They will enroll their kids in Upward Basketball. Then when they do that, they start meeting people from Grace. And they come to our building. And then we're hoping that we can point them to God. And, and then after a season of Upward, or maybe two, or even three seasons, that all of a sudden they'll look, if I was ever going to go to a church, Grace might be the church. I know how to get there. I know where the doors are. I know how it's laid out. And then it's all just an on-ramp to get people to come to church. And, and getting them to come to church, the only reason we're doing that is to point them to God so that they'll come to a place in their life where they'll respond to God's love and faith. That's why we're doing it. It's just loving God and loving people. And I'm so proud of our are people at Grace that do that. I come in today a little bit late, which is becoming a habit apparently because I said that last time. But I came in about 7.15 and, uh, and I get here and, the, and there's a, already a bunch of people here. I mean, it's snowing. Everybody's wondering. You know, I didn't hear it. Nobody mentioned to me about canceling. I walk in and everybody's here. I even asked somebody, are all our, you know, all our platform singers and everything? Everybody showed. We didn't have one person not come. This is the answer I got. And then everybody's here. And then there are people in children's. I love that about grace. Everybody's just here. They come. Why? Because it's important. We're rubbing shoulders. Yeah, you people in your pajamas. Yeah, I get it. But whatever. You know, but we're here. Together. It's a great place to be. Anyway, love is, is kind of messy. It's not always easy. But it's, it's not words. Love is not measured in words spoken. Love is measured in calories burned. Love is action. Love is a do. Some people say, okay, well... You know, loving my neighbors, where I really come in contact with the most people in my life besides my family is in the business world. You know, how does this apply in business? I was talking to a friend of mine this week, and he put it this way. His theory is this. He says, people either love ideas or they love people. So every individual, they either love ideas, and he's talking mainly about leaders. Leaders either love ideas or they love people. If they love ideas, they use people. And if they love people, they use ideas. It's just kind of interesting. What I'm saying, though, is even in the business world, we can put this love into practice by even when we have to do difficult things, and I know that happens in the business world, even when we sometimes have to have a tough conversation with somebody who maybe is not getting their stuff done or whatever, we have to do that in the context of we love and care for, for, for this person. That has to be a part of it. We have to love them. Doesn't mean that we don't help them get better. We do. But we have, it starts with love. In every area of our life, we love people. That's what God wants us to do. Every true believer has experienced brokenness over our sin. 
If you're a true believer, you can't be a true believer without experiencing brokenness over your sin. And once we've been broken over our sin, when we see other people that are messing up, who are or, or are not believers, it doesn't matter, we see ourselves so we can give them empathy because we know we're messed up. Oh, yeah, that's just a messed up person, just like me. And that helps us to be able to love them because we see, hey, we have empathy for where they're at even when things are not going well. You think, wouldn't it be great? You know, where you see love maybe in its purest form that I think we commonly see is the love a mother has for her baby. I mean, think about it. She just pours out love constantly. And what's the baby do? Nothing. You know, the baby doesn't love the mom back, right? The baby's just making a mess all the time, you know, and just has needs. And the mom just pours love and pours love and pours love and gets nothing back from the baby. What if we could love people like that? Just people around us that we could just pour and pour and pour out love, even though we're not getting anything back. That's really what God's called us to do. That's what real love is. Why is it so different? Why is it so different when we're trying to love our neighbor than it is for a mom to love her child? Well, it's because of counterfeit love. Here's what counterfeit love is. Counterfeit love, first of all, is loving with words with no action. That's counterfeit love. That's not, if it's just words with no calories burned, if it's just words, that's counterfeit love. But I think the bigger issue for counterfeit love that's prevalent in our culture is that it's counterfeit love is affection motivated by selfishness. It's loving someone in order to get love back. That is counterfeit love because that's not really loving the person. That's just loving yourself in a roundabout way. And I think our culture is completely kind of bought into that. I, I read a story this week that, that illustrates that. It actually came from a guy named Tim Keller who wrote a book. But um, It's a story about a, a, a peasant farmer and a, and a king. And this peasant farmer... He's, he's, uh, he has this huge garden. That's kind of what he does. And he produces the best carrot. He raises the best carrot that he has ever grown and ever will grown. And he's wondering, wow, this carrot's tremendous. I'll never grow another one like it. What should I do with this carrot? And then he thinks, well, the only thing worthy, the best thing I could do with this carrot is I'll present it to the king to show my love and respect for him. So he asks for an audience with the king. It's granted, and he walks in to see the king, and he's carrying this huge carrot, and he says, King, you know, I, I till the ground, and, and I grow things like this carrot. This is the best carrot I've ever grown. It's the best carrot I ever will grow, and I just wanted to give it to you to show my love and respect for you. And the king, kind of discerning the genuineness of God, the king's like, well, thank you. He, he's truly touched and gratified, and, and the guy turns to leave, and just before he hits the door, the king says, wait a minute, I have some land that borders your land, 
I'm going to give this. You obviously know what you're doing. You're, you're a good steward of the soil, of ground. And I'm going to just give you this land free. Just give it to you freely because I know you'll be a good steward of it. And the guy, completely unexpected, and he's leaving, and he's just amazed and overwhelmed, and he walks out rejoicing. In the meantime, there's a nobleman that's in the king's court, and he's watching all this take place, and he's thinking to himself, wow, that guy got a bunch of land for a carrot. I wonder what the king would do if you brought him something of real value. So this guy breeds horses. So the next day, this guy comes in, to the king's court and he's leading this beautiful black stallion and he brings it and he says oh king this is the greatest stallion that I've ever bred and ever will breed and I'm presenting it to you as a gift and just as a token of my love and respect for you and the king who kind of is a discerning guy he says thank you thank you very much and he receives it and then the guy's standing there and he says, and so it's yours. I've just given it to you. There you go. And the king says, thanks again. And the guy says, I'm going to be leaving now. And the king says, okay. He says, I'll just be heading on out the door. See you later, king. Anything you want to say. And then the king, he kind of, and the guy finally turns to leave. And just before he gets to the door, the king says, stop. He says, I know you're wondering what happened between yesterday and today. He says, yesterday a man came in to give me a carrot. Today you've come in to give yourself a horse. You see, if we're loving, just in order to get love back, that's counterfeit love. As I said, it's just a roundabout way of loving ourselves. God has not called us to that. God has called us to love people, not getting anything back, just to pour out love on them like a mother does a child, even when nothing's coming back our way. And I think our whole culture is bought into counterfeit love. That's why continuously what happens is, well, first, a lot of people don't get married. I think it's because of that. Well, I'm with you as long as you... Meet my needs. But then even in marriage, people stand up in front of their family and friends and they make a vow to love for life. But that's really not what's in their heart. What's in their heart is, I will love you as long as you meet my needs. I will love you as long as you do this for me. Fill in the blank. And then whenever they don't feel feel that that blank is filled in enough then they say I'm out counterfeit love is all over our culture and that's what makes Christianity different than any other religion is people that you rub shoulders with in the marketplace all around you at your workplace at your school wherever you're at they should see that you have not counterfeit love, not just love to see what you can get out of it, love because you're expecting something back, but love that's motivated by our love in Christ because we're not drawing on limited reserves. We're not drawing on a cistern. We've got Christ in our life that is a fountain of love 
continuously overflowing our hearts. And because of that, we can love others. This week, uh, eight of us got a great team. Uh, we're going to go to Thailand and, and see our orphanages there, mainly just to visit the kids and our staff. It's really something that we're saying we need to do this at least every other two years to have a team from our church go over there every two years just to remind them how much we love them. And I think it's been four years. Time just flies. But we're going to go there just to hug those kids and just to remind all they know, these two orphanages, is that there's a church somewhere in the United States in northwest Ohio that takes care of all their needs. Food, clothing, shelter, parents to love them, all that is funded through our church. And we want to keep that connection. For We don't ever want them to feel insecure about that. Why if this church changes their mind? Where would we be? What would happen to us? We want to have that relationship piece in place where they know us and they know that we're not just loved, that they're not just loved by funding, but that we have relationships and we love them. That's the whole point. And that's what God's called us to do. So I'm just here to say, if you're serving at Grace or, or you're giving to our ministry, thank you. Because you're helping us corporately to not only love God, but love our neighbors as ourselves. As ourselves, you know. And we need to be the lighthouse. We need to be the ones that don't buy into counterfeit love. Because counterfeit love, it really drains love of its strength and its staying power, its forbearance, real love, genuine love. Love's completely, and it keeps pouring, and God's equipped us because of his great love for us to be able to do that. So the question is, how are you this week going to love your neighbor? How are we, before next Sunday, going to create the margin in our life that we need to love our neighbors? That's a question that we all need to wrestle with. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father, God, we thank you that we are so undeserving and yet you pour out your love on us. And God, when, when we respond to you in faith, it just opens the floodgates for more and more love to flow into and through our lives. And it's only through this huge reserve of continuing love that we should be able to love others without them loving back, that we can love people genuinely God, we pray for the strength and the creativity, Lord, to be able to love the people that are around us, Lord, like you loved us. Lord, help us to do that. God, we thank you so much for bringing us together as a church family. God, thanks for Grace Community. Lord, help us as individuals to love the people around us and also corporately to love the people around us. God, not, help us not to just talk about it and think about it. But do burn some calories, make it happen. In Christ's name, Lord. Amen.